So I've got to let you know that um, this passage of Scripture, as we read through it, if you're like me and, and, and maybe you've read it before, you're going to read a few couple things and you're just going to go, I'm not sure what this means. And I want you to know that there are others that have wrestled that way as well. I, too, have wrestled through this particular passage because there's some things that Peter says and you're just like, well, I, I'm not sure about this. Martin Luther said this when he was studying this passage and working through it. He says, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I don't know for certain just what Peter means. So I figure that if Martin Luther says that about this passage, then I don't feel so bad. And then you guys can give me a break. But we're going to hopefully work through this and we're going to try to understand this passage and then seek how the Holy Spirit wants to apply it to our lives. Derek Thomas at least puts it this way. Simply put, this follows a timeline, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And I appreciated that because then at least it keeps the main things the main things and helps us understand the content of this passage predominantly. What we have been talking about is Peter talking to a group of believers who have been experiencing suffering. And he's encouraged them with the sure hope that they are going to experience eternity with God. He's challenged them when it comes to living as Christians in a way that pleases God in a world that is contrary to them. And he's challenged them to be obedient in their submissiveness in different areas of life. So he's already covered a number of things already in this particular book. And now near the end of the letter, he's going to be really dealing an awful lot with suffering. And we talked about it a little bit last week, and we're going to continue on because he doesn't let up on this. He just continues to encourage and teach these believers on the issue of suffering as he works through. And we talked a little bit last week about suffering. And one of the last things that Peter said in the passage that we studied last week was he says, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will than for doing evil. So he says, you know what? Sometimes it's God's will that we suffer and we suffer for doing good. And I believe that coming off of that he helps ground these believers by bringing their attention back to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I think it's important that if we as believers experience suffering, I mean, let's be honest, naturally we wrestle with that. Why, God, why am I going through this? Why is it that, that I can't have it comfortable like this person over here or... Um, in the heartache, we don't know what to say, we don't know what to do, we don't know necessarily where to turn, and so we reach out to the Lord, and it's important for us to be able to focus in on Jesus, and Jesus' sufferings at times. And Peter draws our attention to Christ's suffering in this particular passage, and I think it's important for us that when we're trying to understand suffering, that we look at Christ in the midst of his suffering and be reminded of the gospel because that's what this is all about. 
read verse 18 with me, and we're just going to kind of work through the verses. We're going to go through from 18 to 22. And I think it's important that, first of all, the th first thing that we see is that Christ's suffering was sufficient. Now, really, when we're talking about the suffering of Christ, we're talking about his death. His death on the cross of Calvary. But Peter describes it by saying the word suffering because, again, he's connecting Christ's death on the cross, what he endured, to the sufferings of the believers so that they can connect. Hey, I'm going through suffering. You know what? My Savior went through suffering. And so he says, for Christ suffered for sins once for all. Let's pause there for a minute. Peter's reminding these believers that first and foremost, Christ's suffering was sufficient. Christ's death on the cross of Calvary was sufficient. For, sufficient for salvation. He died once for all. He's reminding these believers that when Christ died for sins, he only needed to do it one time. Why? Because he was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He's drawing their attention to Christ. He's contrasting the Old Testament guilt and sin offerings that were offered yearly on the Day of Atonement. And he's saying, you know what, Christ died once for all. He didn't need to die multiple times to save people from their sin. Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary was sufficient to take away the sins of the world. He goes on. He says not only was Christ's suffering sufficient, but he also continues on in that verse by saying the next statement he says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here we understand that Christ's suffering was substitutionary. The righteous for the unrighteous. I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about Christ's suffering for a second. Jesus Christ was perfect and sinless. Jesus was completely without sin. There was absolutely no fault found in him. Nobody could find fault in his teachings. Nobody could find fault in his lifestyle, in his words. No guile was found in his mouth. No deceit was found in his mouth at all. Because Jesus wasn't just fully man, but fully God. God the Son. And he died for unrighteous people. Jesus, who was righteous, perfect, holy, died for unholy people. As we experience suffering, oftentimes, and, and Peter gets into this actually in chapter 4, so we'll, we'll cover that when it comes, but I just want to give a glimpse. One of the things that when we go through suffering, suffering strengthens our faith, it produces perseverance, but also it refines us. Part of the time, part of, of the aspect of suffering is that when we go through suffering, it should be something that causes us to take a step back and say, hold on a second, is the suffering that I'm experiencing actually disciplined from the Lord? Is there something in my life that, that is sin that I haven't confessed before the Lord? And so God's trying to get my attention and say, look, there's sin in your life and you need to confess that and repent of it and turn away from it. 
Part of it, it's, it's a refining process because we are unrighteous people. We're sinful people. And yet Peter draws these believers' attention and our attention back to Christ. Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. He took our place on the cross of Calvary. He died in our place he bore the wrath of God on himself that we deserved to bring us to salvation. Peter says, look, when you're going through suffering, look at Christ. Look at Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering was sufficient to save people. Christ's suffering was substitutionary. He took our place. He paid our debt that we owed to Almighty God. And then thirdly, Christ's suffering was satisfactory. I'm going to read from Isaiah 53 in a second, but I just want us to see this. You can also understand that the aspect of reconciliation is wrapped up in this because the very last statement in verse uh, 18, or the very last part of the sentence, it's that he might bring you to God. That's reconciliation. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we are saved from our sin, we are brought into a right relationship with God. It's a satisfactory sacrifice for sin. That God was pleased with the offering that Jesus made for sin. And it enables us to come to God. I want to read... Um, Isaiah 53, because Isaiah 53 just wraps all of this up for us in such a wonderful way. Isaiah says this, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have any impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like somebody people turned away from. He was despised. We didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went away like sheep. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and he had spoken not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. And when you make him a guilt offering, you see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. 
right there in those verses, it talks about the unpaid debt of sin that was satisfied in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry our iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. That's what Jesus did for us. When Jesus, in his dying breath on the cross, yelled out, it is finished, it's because he accomplished exactly what he came to do, to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of man. If we read those passages of Scripture in the New Testament, we would be reminded of the fact that when Jesus did that, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, this thick, heavy veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the priest would enter in one time a year and offer up that atoning sacrifice, which was only temporary, which didn't save people from their sin. Only Jesus could do that. That temple veil was torn and it gave, provided access for believers to the Father. Because of Christ's death for our sins and God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us who believe in him, we can enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise as the psalmist says. I think it's important that we remember what Christ did on the cross of Calvary for us as believers. Why? Because Paul says that what we experience on this earth is only a light momentary affliction. And I want you to, I want you to know that Paul, when saying that, knew what affliction was. He knew what suffering was. He knew what persecution was. And yet he could still say that. Why? Because Paul, when he says that, is thinking in light of eternity. He's thinking, you know what? Right now, it's a light momentary affliction. Why? In light of the fact that I'm going to spend eternity with Almighty God. In light of what Christ did for me, you know what? This is just a light momentary affliction. And let's make no mistake about it. Paul knew exactly what it was to suffer. Right? He was beaten with rods, he was stoned, he was whipped, he was imprisoned, he, was in, uh, he, he experienced shipwreck, he was betrayed by people without and within the church. Right? Paul knew what it was to suffer. And yet in light of who Christ is, in light of what Christ went through, in light of eternity, Paul says, like it's just a light momentary affliction. And that's why when we look at our affliction in light of who Christ is and what he's accomplished on the cross for believers, we can say, you know what? This is nothing because I get to spend eternity with God. I have access to the Father now. If there's anybody who we would say never deserves suffering, we would say, wouldn't it be Jesus? Perfect. Jesus came, he healed Sick people, he cast out demons, he fed 5,000 and 4,000. 
right? You look at that. He never spoke any lies. He was never did anything wrong. You would think if anybody should never have experienced suffering, it would be Jesus. And yet Jesus experienced significant, brutal suffering at the hands of wicked people for wicked people. So that's what he came to do. So what is our suffering in light of that, really, when we think about it? So Peter is drawing the believer's attention back to the sufferings of Jesus Christ so that they can keep their suffering in light of what's going on. I think he continues on with that, though, but you know what? I don't want to move on from that quite yet because there might be somebody here this morning who doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I want you to know that what Peter is saying that Jesus experienced here, he experienced it for you. That right now, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, Scriptures say that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But you know what? Christ wants to make you alive in Him. If you would but confess your sin before God, repent of it, turn away from it, and trust Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. This is what He endured for you. He wants to save you from your sin, and I would encourage you, I would urge you today, trust Christ as your Savior. Rest in the fact that Jesus did it all for you. He paid it all for you. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to God. You can't give enough to the church. You can't do enough good works. You can't attend enough services. You can't try to be good enough in your own merits because Scripture makes it abundantly clear that all of our righteousness as human beings, they're like filthy rags to God. It's, it's never going to measure up. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. You can't stand before Almighty God and claim to be righteous as a sinful person. You need Jesus to save you. You need Jesus' righteousness to be able to stand before Almighty God. Trust Christ today. Talk to one of us as pastors after the service. We would love Make sure that you understand what it means to be saved. I encourage you today. I want us to move on, though, because as Derek Thomas said, this is really just following a timeline, a simple timeline. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And Peter gets into that. He says, look, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I have to say... Bible scholars, they, they, they pick apart that verse and they get into all sorts of different avenues. Your version of Scripture in your translation may have spirit in lowercase. You might have it in capital. There's a lot of discussion in that. It would take way too long for me to get into that. But I personally prefer the way that the CSB translated, made alive by the Spirit, talking about the Spirit of God. Some reasons for that. I could share that with you another time. But it says, He was put to death in the flesh, but He was made alive by the Spirit, in which He went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. 
How many of you right off the bat reading those verses say, look, I know exactly what he's talking about. Makes total sense to me. Pastor Dave, you don't need to keep on going. I got it all down, Pat. If you do, please come up here. Because this would be one of the sections where Martin Luther reading it goes, I'm not sure if I understand what Peter's talking about here. It is important for me to help you to understand that in working through this passage, there are three common interpretations to these verses today among solid believers, pastors, scholars, and so on. I'm going to give you the three. I'm going to give you the one that I think best fits, though I could change my mind at some point. These are summarized from Tom Schreiner. Actually, John Piper summarizes Tom Schreiner this way, and I like the way that he kept it simple, so that's why I'm sharing it. Option number one is this. When talking about Jesus in his resurrection, going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison, Piper says this, it refers to Christ's preaching through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. Okay, there is a reference back to Noah and the flood. And so some would say this passage is that, that Christ was preaching through Noah to those who, were, who lived while Noah was building the ark. Okay, and they, they would refer us back to 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11 because it's talking about the prophets and the spirit of Christ and so that's one option. You guys can look into that later if you want and tell me if you think that that's the best one. Number two, second way to, that some interpret this passage is it refers to old, the Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. They would cite Ephesians 4, 8, and 9, where he went down and he freed the, took the captives with him as he ascended. It's the idea of taking an, an understanding of the fact that Old Testament believers, right, went to a, a paradise, Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. We see a glimpse of that when Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man who was a sinner goes to Hades or hell, and that Lazarus goes to Abraham's side or paradise, and there's a great gulf fix between them, and one is in torment and one is not. And some would say Jesus went there and took those Old Testament believers up to glory. And then the third option, which I favor not because it's the majority interpretation, um, but I think it makes some sense here. And that is that the text describes Christ's victory and judgment over evil angels. Some of you might say, wow, this is, a, this is a stretch here. But according to Schreiner, this is the interpretation held by most Bible scholars today. There's a couple passages of Scripture that I'm going to read that I believe connect with that a little bit. I'm going to draw your attention to Genesis chapter 6 for a quick second, though. Because keeping in light of the fact that Paul makes it abundantly clear that we as believers don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Right, so when we're experiencing suffering, persecution from 
an unsaved world that pushes back against us as believers in Jesus Christ, as people who want to stand up for the truth of God's word. We talked a little bit about kind of the battleground that we probably, excuse me, probably find ourselves in this, at this time in history. We need to understand that what's behind this battleground are demonic forces. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness in this present age. So I, I believe that when we experience persecution and suffering, behind that is the devil and his demons. You see that in the life of Job. Job was a man who honored God, and yet Satan attacked him to try to get him to curse God. And Job would not do that. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it says this, When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind who were beautiful, and they took up, excuse me, and they, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim, just means giants, could, be, could mean fa- fallen ones, were on the earth those, both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind and bore children to them. And they were powerful men of old, famous men. So, one view of this is that the sons of God here are actually angelic fallen angels that had sexual relationships with women and then they had offspring and that was something that was repugnant to God. Second Peter chapter 2 verses five, 4 and 5 seem to maybe connect with this and back up this understanding In verse 4 it says, For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of of righteousness and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world uh, of the ungodly. Peter making a connection maybe here because he's talking about the days of Noah. Jude connects with 2 Peter chapter 2, where Jude uh, 6 says this, the angels who did not keep their own position, so that's where most would say Jude's likely referring back to this passage of Scripture. But abandon their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for judgment on the great day. And so the majority position today would say, you know what, What Jesus was doing at his death and his resurrection was proclaiming to these evil spirits, these demonic powers to say, I have paid for sins, I'm victorious, and your judgment is sure. And if that is the way that we can interpret this passage, if we know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness in this present age, when we experience suffering, and ultimately it's a result of their attacks on believers, we can say, but, but God, Christ gained the victory. These demonic forces are, are sure for judgment because Jesus won 
And we can experience suffering because Jesus is victorious. I believe that that is a way that we can understand that in light of this. That's just one of the three. You can study them out for yourself. I'd love to hear maybe what you learn as you study on your own. But that's a one way that we can potentially understand these verses. And I want to finish up by the last section. I do need to say that between that passage and the next one, there are things that we know that this passage is not teaching. I didn't give you one of the views of that previous verse because it's absolutely wrong and totally not biblical. But one thing that we know that this passage is not teaching, especially in light of that last one, this preaching to the spirits in prison, is that God will give a second chance to those in hell, especially those who never heard the gospel. That's what some people say that that passage teaches. It is not that at all. Because Scripture has a wealth of passages that are contrary to that. I just want to read a couple. Romans 1, 18 through 20, verse 20 says this, For his invisible attributes, talking to sinful mankind, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world and being understood through what he has made people. As a result, people are without excuse. If we're without excuse, then we don't need that second chance. John 3, 16 through 18 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why did he not come to condemn? Because verse 18 says this, Every, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And yet, his invisible attributes, that is, eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen through what has been created. We are without excuse. This idea of God giving a second chance to those in hell. Scriptures don't teach it. Another thing that this passage doesn't teach, and it's in verse 21, is this. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, referring back to Noah and the ark and the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I need to let you know that this passage is not teaching that baptism is salvific, or it saves us from our sin, okay? How do I know that? Because Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are not saved by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say this, You are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Baptism is a work that would fly in the face of this verse. It would fly in the face of Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the kindness of of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, 
through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. How about Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are not works. It's putting our active trust in Jesus to do it all for us. So if baptism doesn't save us, then what is Peter saying in this passage? Well, it's actually what consistent with what you should hear from us on a regular basis when we talk about baptism. See, Peter's not really specifically talking about the actual wa- act of water baptism, baptism by immersion. I believe that he's actually going first and foremost back to what Jesus has said and also what Paul's already said when he uses the word baptism. Mark 10, 38 through 40, Jesus said this to them, don't you know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? What was Jesus talking about? Jesus was talking about his death. His death on the cross of Calvary for salvation. We are able, he told the, they told him. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to give. Instead... It is for those to whom it has been prepared. Really, it's a picture of Christ's death that Peter's thinking about when he's talking about baptism. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, 1 through 5. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live in it? Still live in it. Or are you unaware that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by his baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we certainly will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. I believe that Peter is really just going and saying very much the same thing that Peter or that Paul and Jesus are saying. So that when somebody goes through water baptism, baptism by immersion, what do we teach here? We teach that it's for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because when they're baptized, they are publicly declaring to everybody, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. I am identify with the fact that Christ died for my sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised three days later according to the scriptures. That I am dead to my sins and I'm alive to newness of life. Why? Because I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a picture. It's a picture of the saving work of Jesus Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection. I believe that that's what Peter's talking about. That's why he says... That it's not for the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge or an appeal for a good conscience before God. The word appeal is actually the better word there. Lastly, Peter says this. Through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with the angels, authorities and powers subject to him. I believe Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison. 
is connected to this verse right here. He is declared, I am victorious. I am God the Son. I have accomplished the work of salvation that those who put their faith and trust in me will spend eternity with God. Why? Because I've completed what I needed to complete it. I have won the victory over sin and death and hell. And Jesus proclaims that. We can experience suffering and we can walk through that suffering and we can do it in a way that honors and glorifies God in a way that is a witness and a testimony to a lost and dying world. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. I believe that that's actually exemplified in the song that we actually sang today. We sang the song It Is Well by Horatio Spafford. I want you to read, I want to just tell you the story behind that. If you don't already know it, most of you do. This hymn was written after a traumatic event in Spafford's life. The first two were the death of his four-year-old son in the great Chicago fire of 1871, which ruined him financially. So he lost his son in that fire, the tragedy of losing a child. On top of that, he lost everything financially. He had been a successful lawyer. He had invested significantly in the property in the area of Chicago, which was extensively damaged in that fire. His business interests were further hit by the economic downturn that happened in 1873, at which time he planned to travel to England with his family to help D.L. Moody with upcoming evangelism evangelistic campaigns. In a late change of plan, he sent his family ahead while he was delayed on business. While his family traveled across the Atlantic Ocean, the ship that they were on sank rapidly after a collision at sea. All four of Spafford's daughters died. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him the now, in, uh, now famous telegram, Saved Alone. There's anybody that knows what heartache and suffering is. I, could, I think Spafford would be one of them. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, they stopped at the site where the ship went down. And they had a worship service there, and it was there that he penned these words. It is well with my soul. He writes, when sea billows, excuse me, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Now that makes sense. But what seems odd, unless you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is why he would write two verses down these words. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. How can he say that? In the midst of deep suffering, how can he endure that suffering? Because he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ who won the victory. And no matter what he was experiencing, suffering-wise on this earth, he kept that in light of who Jesus was, or Jesus is and what Jesus did for him. That's why he can say at the very end of the hymn, and Lord, haste the day 
when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, when the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, it is well, it is well with my soul. Peter wants to encourage us that no matter what our sufferings might be, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered for us, who won the victory.